I want to get us started with uh, with some prayer, especially we've had a couple of um, big incidents in our greater community, not the Bellcrest community, but the greater community. Um, two students um, have committed suicide just in the last couple days. So, um, and one of them is a friend of Jackson Dudley. So I, I, please keep Jackson in your prayers as well. Christina is home with Jackson this morning um, to, to help him process some of this. So um, let's just start out with praying. And I, I want to remind us all, this is why we are investing in the students at EA. This is what we're doing. We are bringing them hope and relationship and Jesus' love. And so thank you for your part in that. Um, and today's a, a, an especially poignant day to, um, to have this luncheon with the, the students. So um, let's pray. Jesus, our hearts mourn with the parents of these students, with their friends, with their teachers. It's incomprehensible to us what that experience is. And um, Lord, we, we know that you are in the midst of it. We know that you love each and every person who is affected. Lord, help us to know when we can speak into the lives of students. Uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to have EA students here today for lunch. Um, we are grateful that we can be part of their lives. Lord, help us to know um, for other students as well how we can reach out and be part of the hope that they have in you. Be with our time this morning with our talk. We're grateful for the opportunity to study your word. And Lord, you have a message for us, for each and every one of us today. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. So I have titled today's talk as Vineyard Vineyard Party because we have three parables um, which are all about Jesus' authority. Um, if you remember, in the previous week, we had um, someone questioning Jesus' authority. And so here we have Jesus' response. When my brother and I were growing up, okay, we were a little older than that, um, when, when we had some chores around the house when we were growing up, and this is frequently what happened. My brother and I, here we are a little older. Aw, isn't that cute? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some of you might know him. Um, John E. V. is his name. Um, and he and his wife used to be here. Kristen was on staff. Anyways, back to my story. Um, what happened frequently in our house was that our mother would ask us to do a chore. And we had two different responses. My mother would ask me, and I would say, being the good rebel that I am, like a child, no. I'd stomp off, and then I'd sneak in later when she wasn't watching and do it. My brother, on the other hand, would be like, okay, sure, I'll do it. In a few minutes. And then a few minutes became an hour, and two hours, and three hours, and the chore never got done. Except sometimes when I would go in and do it for him. So we had two different responses to 
being asked to do something. And that is exactly what is happening in our parable today, our first one. So, what do you think? We're in verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, being the good stubborn son he is, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. Nice, proper response, right? I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. Believe him. So our, our three parables today, this is the first, are indictments on people who are rejecting Jesus' authority. The, the assumption here is that the people who are hearing this parable, parable um, are, in fact, rejecting his authority. So as I mentioned earlier, in verse 23 of the same chapter, um, the, there's the question launched at Jesus, under what authority do you do these things? So the hearers are claiming to be faithful, obedient to God, but are actually blind to the fact that obedience actually means responding in faith and righteousness. Their refusal of the ministry of John the Baptist actually anticipates the rejection of Jesus. Let's take a look at the form of this parable because I think the form or the structure of it helps us to understand what's going on. So the first thing we have, first we have the parable. In the parable, we have first the imitation and response of the first son, the rebel. We have the invitation and response of the second son, the passive aggressive one, right? And in fact, my brother, he admits this, we're both better about our, how we respond to these things now, um, but he admits that he actually was being very passive-aggressive with mom. So he's the passive-aggressive one. We have the application of the parable. So parable first and then the application. I need to back up a little bit and, and give you a little bit of my own personal history. Um, so I am American Baptist. This is going to come up a couple times Okay, today. Um, I'm, I'm Baptist. Now, most of you think of Baptist as Southern Baptist, um, and because that's the biggest Baptist denomination in the United States. Um, American Baptist is a little different, but still Baptist. So please, when I say Baptist, don't think Southern Baptist, but American Baptist, okay? And my Baptist roots go very deep, so forgive me, all you Calvinists out there. Okay, so we have the application of the parable. So the first, um, first thing we have in the application is the faithful response of the first son. So even though he said no, he actually did what the father was asking him to do. 
Then we have this faithful response of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. You notice that um, the, these two are kind of stuck together. The first son and the tax collectors and the prostitutes are, respond the same way, right? They're, they're breaking the rules at first. They're saying, no, we don't want to have anything to do with you and your vineyard, your righteousness. But then they listen to John the Baptist and they respond, right? That's what Jesus is saying. So we have this contrast between the unbelief of the Jewish leaders and the faith of the tax collectors and prostitutes with respect to John the American Baptist. <laughs> That's what we call him in our house, John the American Baptist. And then we also have a repeated indictment of the Jewish leaders for their hard-heartedness. They did not respond to John the American Baptist. I told you that was going to be important. So, back to our parable. Um, we have in this parable just some, some interesting little pieces because I think this helps us to understand what's going on. In the Greek language, which this was Matthew wrote in Greek, um, there are two words for the word son. Okay, that gets that gets translated son in English. Um, and so the first one is huion, and that relates to um, that's just the like male issue. It's the male progeny, the next, the, the male child of a person. Okay, that's huion. Here we have the word technon, which refers to not just the male, but also females. It doesn't, it's not gender specific, it's child. And it has the sense of relationship. It's the way that the relationship is built. Um, so there's a the sense of a bond between the parent and the child. So it's not just that these two dear children are rejecting what the father's asking them to do, right? It's that there's a, a relationship that is being broken, especially by the second son, right? Uh, it looks like the relationship is broken by the first one, but in fact, the relationship stays strong because the, the instructions are followed. But the second child breaks the relationship by not following through. The, the Jewish leaders in this story are the second son, right? They have received the law, they said, okay, yes, this is what we're going to do. But they didn't actually obey, right? There was no relationship. The relationship between the Jewish leaders and the father was all about doing, the, doing this and doing that and doing that, but not actually living into the kingdom of God. The tax collectors and the prostitutes at first rejected John the Baptist, John the American Baptist, but eventually came and followed him. So we have this reference earlier. We were talking about John the Baptist last week. We're talking, we're still talking about John the Baptist because John the Baptist is a, a, a marker for how 
um, they're going to follow Jesus or not, right? But you notice an interesting part here that Jesus says here that they believed John, right? They believed John. They didn't believe in John. They believed him because he is telling the truth. Whereas when Jesus talks about himself, he says, believe in me, right? Do you see that difference? He's not just talking about truth. He's talking about who I am. There's a familiar phrase, right? So our application for this first parable is about how often we degenerate into maintaining the institution of the church, right? Over being excited about what God is doing. Saying it, saying yes, sir, I'll do it, sir, isn't enough. Doing it is what's important. Okay, next one. The parable of the tenants. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. I've always wondered about that, haven't you? Like, why would he put all that effort into it and then move, move away? I don't know. That is not answered in this parable. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. Then he sent the other servants to them more than the first time and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. This story echoes Isaiah 5.2. So you can look that up on your own time, write it down, Isaiah 5.2, where the vineyard symbolizes Israel. The tenant farmers, therefore, are the religious leaders. They have this loyalty to the Torah, but are rejecting what God is doing. And the servants refer to the Old Testament prophets. Now, what's the problem here? The problem is that the tenants didn't want to give fruit to the owner of the vineyard, right? They were not honoring God by producing fruit. They had the fruit, but they were holding on to it. They were being um, greedy <laughs> about their fruit. They wanted to keep it, um, and they didn't want to give it to God. They wanted all the glory, all the recognition, all the, the um, wonders of being religious leaders, being specialists in scripture, right? That's who they were. But they didn't want to give that fruit to God. What happens when we don't give our fruit to God? Right? I mean, that's just, this is exactly what this is talking about. Um, about the times that we don't want to um, be partners with God. We just we want to kind of hog the glory of whatever is going on. 
really easy to do that, by the way. Look into that. So this language is uh, the harvest time um, is the same language that is referring to the dawning of the kingdom of God. Um, literally, it means the season of the fruits. An interesting side note, um, Matthew omits the term beloved. Mark and Luke, the story, both use the term beloved son. Um, Matthew omits that. This is the, the huias, the male progeny, right? Um, and you see that in the story when, as the tenants are responding to the son, they say, he is the heir, right? He is the male progeny. Mark and Luke then add beloved to kind of create that relation, sense of relationship. Um, but here Matthew leaves it out. Don't know why. Um, and this is actually the first time in public, in the book of Matthew, that Jesus asserts his own sonship. He's making this direct parallel between the son of the vineyard and himself. He's referred himself to himself as the Son of Man, but this time he's referring to himself directly as the Son of God. Okay, going on. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, he will do, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretched to, wretches to a wretched end. Isn't that a great sentence? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the important part here in this story, it's important that they didn't give their fruit to the owner of the vineyard, right? That's important, but the most important part is how they treated the owner's emissaries. They killed and stoned and beat the servants, right? And Israel has always persecuted its prophets. It's interesting here that the fruit produced by the new tenants, tenants will go to the owner, right? They're going to give the owner their fruit. The tenants will give their fruit to the kingdom. Now, is this a little strange that we're talking a lot about vineyards and then suddenly we switch into building materials? Does that, does that feel a little weird to you? So, but there's a reason for it. Um, this is a quote from Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Um, and, and this is actually a play on words. So we're reading this in English. It was written in Greek. But Jesus was speaking and quoting from Hebrew. So this is Hebrew play on words that does not translate into Greek or into English. There is there are two words. The word for son in Hebrew is ben. You might recognize that from some famous, it's similar in Arabic, so if you hear some names like um, Osama bin Laden, right? Um, bin Salman, the, that's Son of Salman, son of Laden, right? Um, so Ben or Bin is the um, Hebrew word for son. 
the Hebrew word for stone is even. Very similar, right? And so that we have this um, play on words going on here, and it's not the only place that this happens. From 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, look familiar? The stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you see that there's this wordplay going on between sun and stone. And we can go back and we can actually see that um, when we say the, the cornerstone, the sun that the builders rejected, right? We, we have just seen in this story, this parable, that the sun is rejected, right? And then Jesus says the stone that has been rejected will become the cornerstone. He's directly relating the story to that psalm. Moving on, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So the kingdom of God here is not referring to the age to come, but rather to God's sovereignty. So God is the ruler of all things. He's the owner of the vineyard, right? Um, and it's going to be that, that vineyard is going to be taken away from the evil tenants, right? And given to other people who will produce its fruit, who will give um, the fruit to the owner of the kingdom. With that, with that uh, ownership or the, the tenantship, I should say, um, it includes the rights and responsibilities of being God's people. The rights are that you get to work the soil, right? The responsibility is that God deserves us to work for him and produce fruit for him. Remember that Matthew is written for a Jewish Christian audience. Um, and so he here is using this parable to help explain why this, the Jewish system has broken down why it's no longer adequate, and why Jesus is his replacement, and also why there are all these Gentiles who are coming and being brought into the fold, 
right? People who didn't grow up with the Jewish system, people who didn't uh, don't understand um, all of the traditions and all of the the stuff, all the rules that the Jewish leaders are bound by, right? Um, they're coming in just coming to know Jesus, and that's how they're coming in. So this uh, this term, um, it says, um, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. So in Greek, this is ta ethne, uh, which means a nation, um, a people. Now, frequently in the in the New Testament, um, the term Gentiles comes from the term ethnos. So that's you see that's ta ethne, ta ethnos is just two um, uses of the same word. Um, but using it say, to say the people rather than the Gentiles um, is, is not excluding the Jews, right? It's really important for Matthew because the church that he's writing to um, or writing this for is specifically Jewish and Christian, right? There, many of them are Jews who have converted, who accept Jesus. Um, and so he wants to make sure that they know that, that it's not been taken away from them just because they're Jewish. It's only taken away because if you're not doing, not following the commandments, not being righteous, right? It's only because of their actions. So if they act right, if they give their fruit, the vineyard owner, um, they're part of the nation, the people. Verse 44 is interesting. And do any of you have verse 44 in brackets in your Bibles? No? In some Bibles it might be bracketed. Um, it, verse 44 is not in all of the old manuscripts. Um, it is in some of the oldest ones. So it's in most Bibles. But it's not in some. And it's kind of weird. So some people think it's a lit, what they call a later accretion which means layering upon layers, right? So they think that this was put in later. Who knows? Um, the, the, one of the main Greek texts actually does not include this verse. Um, so if your Bible doesn't, that probably means that it's coming, they're translating from the Greek, the UBS version of the Greek text. Um, but then there are also arguments that it is original. This is a reference to um, a couple of verses in Daniel. But I also want to read from Isaiah. Um, because it, we, we have more of this stone sun thing going on. He will be, Isaiah 8, verses 14 to 15, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Kind of sounds depressing, doesn't it? And in Daniel 2, verses 44 and 45, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a 
a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So the sun is this stumbling block. Jesus is this stumbling block to many in Israel. We know that, right, because of the way the Jewish leaders responded to Jesus throughout his ministry. Um, but what this is saying is when he returns, all of that opposition will be crushed and behind, and everyone who's left will be brought to into the kingdom. This is where I really appreciate the irony that is included in scripture. Um, this, this kind of makes me laugh. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were too scared of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Okay, so the irony here, do you see it? In the vineyard, what did they do to the son? They took him out and killed him. And here the chief priests are like, ooh, he's talking about us. Hmm, how can we take him out and kill him? But they were too afraid because they saw him as a prophet. The people did anyway. Okay, so this is also, this is the first time the Pharisees are linked with the chief priests um, in Matthew. There's only one other time when those two are together. Usually it's scribes and Pharisees, or Pharisees and Sadducees, or Sadducees and chief priests, or whatever. Um, but here it's the Pharisees and the chief priests. So you have the, the um, legal leaders and the religious leaders together, right? The Pharisees are, are legal, legalists, legalists, that's the word, um, and, the, and the chief priests would be the ones um, holding the, the religious um, rights and structures. Um, so they, this is probably to emphasize the um, totality of religious leadership. Here Jesus is equated with a prophet, um, so that's a, a deliberate parallel to the references earlier to the Old Testament prophets. So the intent of this parable is not to condemn Israel, but to point people to producing fruit, right? Producing fruit for the kingdom. Okay, third parable. I've got 10 minutes. Wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. This is another judgment parable. Um, it has parallels to the preceding parable also, but um, it has this addition of actual punishment. In the previous parable, um, there's punishment alluded to, but not acted upon. Here it's acted upon. Um, there's some, some language that's verbatim, exactly the same as the preceding parable. He sent his servants, um, and there's that's also that allusion to the, the prophets. So in this parable, the, the second set of servants, so you have the first set of servants that go, those are obviously the prophets, but the second set of servants um, are not just the next wave of prophets. Um, it's probably referring to John the Baptist, since we've been kind of talking about him, right? 
um, and Jesus and Jesus' disciples. Um, so we have the first set of, of servants are uh, sent out, people said, no, 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 I've got better things to do. Second set of servants are sent out, and um, he says, can, can you just imagine this, this, this father who is creating this wonderful wedding banquet, and he's like, the oxen and the fattened cattle have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come, come to the wedding banquet, right? Um, but still, the, the people who were invited uh, to the wedding banquet walked away and refused to come. So there's some strong eschatological fulfillment, um, fulfillment referred to here. Eschatological means you know, the, the future kingdom, right? Um, so we're talking about future kingdom. The ideas um, of the oxen and the fattened cattle um, are used only here in the whole New Testament, okay? Um, but, there, but there's this sense of when everything is ready, right, the readiness, everything's prepared. So that's the eschatological, that's the, the future fulfillment of God's kingdom. And there's this clear, clear call, come, come. What does that sound like? <laughs> That sounds like Jesus calling to his disciples, right? Come and follow me. Come and follow me. That's what he says over and over um, to his disciples and others. So we have uh, some similar imagery going on in, um, in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 9, 2 through 5. This is speaking of wisdom. Wisdom is the she, right? Capital W, wisdom. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point in the city, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come and eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. So she's inviting them into wisdom, right? They're simple, and she's inviting them to become um, knowledgeable. The king's response is not left to the listener's imagination here, though. Okay, he's, he's not happy that he's been um, put off. So they paid no attention, went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So there's John the Baptist and Jesus, right, and the disciples. They were mistreated and killed. The king was enraged. What did he do? He waged war against the city. He sent his army and destroyed the murderers and burned their city. That's a pretty extreme response, right? So the book of Matthew was written down. The stories are, of course, from Jesus' time. But it was written down, orally passed along, written down after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So 70 years later, after Jesus, Jerusalem was burned down. And so Matthew is writing down this, these stories and compiling these stories from his memory and from other sources um, to tell the story of Jesus, to have a written record of it um, after Jerusalem's been destroyed. So you can imagine that the hearers of this story, the readers of this story, um, would think 
The king has enraged. He sent his army and destroyed the murderers and burned the city. It's exactly what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. So they would have been thinking, probably, that would have sparked some thoughts um, for them. And he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. To go to the street corners and invite the banquet to the banquet anyone he finds. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. The bad as well as the good, the wedding, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. So, this is kind of weird, right? Like, you're, you're grabbing people off the street, and they're expected to be wearing wedding clothes? Who knows? Um, the wedding banquet is ready. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people that they could find the bad as well as the good. You notice that they emphasize bad here. Listed first. The emphasis is on the bad as well as the good. They did nothing to earn this. Right? They did nothing to earn this. They were all invited. Um, earlier we saw that the tax collectors and the prostitutes were included. So here we have the bad and the good. Um, this is, reminds us of the parable of the, the fishnets in chapter 13. I'm not going to read it because I'm getting short on time. Um, so the wedding banquet is not the church, but is the age to come. The guests are to wear righteousness. So one of my husband's good friends, my husband was in his wedding. And at that wedding, when they all showed up, uh, the, the groom's mother walked in with a pair of black socks. Because she knew that the groom's brother was going to end up with white socks and his wife's too. Right? She knew that. He wasn't going to be prepared for the, with the proper attire. So, um, and it was true, he had white socks on, so he changed his socks, and then he looked okay for the wedding. So, um, because we are to be clothed in righteousness, that's what this is about, being clothed in righteousness, the man who is not wearing righteousness is thrown out. Um, we have this formulaic thing, King told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is very formulaic, um, being thrown outside into the darkness. We see that also in chapter 8, and, and later we'll see that in chapter 25. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And this is to encourage us to a vigorous effort to live a Christian life. Everyone is called, but few show themselves to be part of the elect. Discipleship and righteousness are key factors. Call, Jesus calls everyone. And then there's personal responsibility. Hello, I'm a Baptist. Um, to work together to identify the elect. Sorry, I, I just had to say that. It's also Presbyterian. <laughs> I'm not being untrue. I'm sorry. Um, so it's the call and the personal responsibility that have to work together to identify who are the elect, who are the ones who are going to be chosen to enter into the, the banquet. 
Christians are not exempt from judgment if we reject who Jesus is, reject his righteousness. Matthew was distressed by this mixed state of the church. There were so many false prophets and false disciples whose practices were not um, in accord with what they were saying. Um, and we've seen this throughout Matthew. We'll continue to see it. Um, but that's, that's what he's trying to communicate here, that our words and our practice need to be the same. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So, this quote from Eugene Show, in our culture we can be so obsessed with the spectacular, but what if God has called us to small, ordinary, mundane things? May we still be faithful. May we still go about such things with great love and joy. Where we live, work, play, and learn. Here we've seen the vineyard where we work. We've seen the wedding feast where we play. Bring your acts of righteousness. Wear your clothing of righteousness wherever you go. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for the gift of your kingdom. We ask that you help us to um, step into our clothing of righteousness. Lord, be with this food that we eat. Be with the conversations that we have around our tables. Um, we're grateful for the opportunity to spend this time with EA students. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.